welcome to episode 156 of the Daniel Yoris Podcast with today's guest, Sam Forger. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Sam Forger, the French last name, not from Montreal. We love to see it. <laughs> Thanks for being here, buddy. What's going on, brother? I think uh, I'm four generations removed from Canada, so not too, too far off. <laughs> That's too funny, man. Um, now, you recently moved back to Boston-ish, and the last time or when we met in Edmonton, I re- recall you talking about how happy you were just having recently moved back to New York. So talk talk me through that one. Yeah, you know what it is? I think I just have this constant itch to, I guess it's as expected, being that the fact that I have bounced around a fair amount, this constant itch to kind of just get to the next place and um, see the next thing and explore. I will say being... Um, close-ish to Boston. There's a lot of social upside where I have a lot of uh, family and friends in the area. So that's definitely a big appeal of being back here periodically. Uh, Although I do have a tendency, the second I get somewhat settled uh, in one place to already start thinking about the next spot and the next spot, um, which is something overwhelmingly I enjoy. But uh, without going on too much of a side tangent, I'd say the one downside is often that social community component of, of course, if you're picking up and leaving you know, every three months, every six months, every nine months, uh, it's tough to kind of have deep ties. And obviously, you know, to tie this immediately back into health and fitness, that does have tremendous upside from like a well-being standpoint. Mm-hmm. So as a whole, trying to find that balance between satisfying the urge to explore, but also being somewhat stationary enough where my social interactions aren't so fleeting and non-permanent, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And I think that that's a perfect kind of just analogy into the health and fitness and dealing with your schedule and what things are realistic with what you can do. But before we just jump into that, because that is one thing that I want to talk about today, just can you quickly introduce yourself just for anyone who may not know what who you are and, and what is it that you do? Yeah, sure. So quick backstory. I started personal training in 2012. Uh, at the time, my focus was uh, actually working with athletes, which is very far from what I do now. Mm-hmm. But being that I had a little bit of a basketball background, I just assumed I think like any young athlete that you want to work with, in this case for me, NBA guys or NFL combine or whatever. And, you know, maybe I'll work with pro bodybuilders and all the meathead stuff. Uh, But to condense a very long, logistically boring story, I had to quickly pivot to um, at home training where I was going to my clients' houses and training people by bringing, you know, power blocks out of the trunk of my Hyundai Sonata, you know, into people's homes, which as you'd expect, rules out most NBA hopefuls in terms of a training (laughs) dynamic and environment. So um, yeah, I had to quickly make that pivot. Excuse me, I had to quickly make that pivot. And the vast majority of people that I ended up working with had some sort of fat loss specific goal. But what I found was that even if somebody, you know, was hiring me for three to four sessions per week and I'd show up and we'd crush the I say we, the client would crush the session. And I'd come back a few days later. And again, these people mostly had fat loss goals. I don't want to say it didn't matter what we did in the sessions, but it kind of had a ceiling to how productive we could be relative to their goals. If everything that was happening between the sessions wasn't super great in terms of food Mm -hmm. quality, stress management, sleep hygiene, et cetera. So I started helping people more and more with that just because, you know, even if you're training four or five hours a week, you have another 160 plus hours to navigate that turned into hybrid training for a couple of years where I was supporting people online before I really had a fleshed out online business or kind of knew what that was. It was just out of necessity because I wanted to offer that support between sessions. Uh, And then I guess it would be six years into things. This was back in 2017, 2018. Uh, I took things fully online and really doubled down on that you know, life outside of the gym, day-to-day support. Okay, you're crushing the workouts, wonderful. Let's make sure what you're doing the other 97% of the week is also in line with your goals. And yes, I've been doing that uh, fully online uh, with a big kind of fat loss uh, lifestyle emphasis uh, for the last six years or so. And that is generally who I help at this point is people who, you know, have a fat loss goal, but I would say more specifically, people who feel like they've tried every diet under the sun. Hey, Sam, I've done keto and Weight Watchers and Carnivore and Atkins and Mediterranean, this, that, the other, and nothing seems to work for me. Kind of, I'm at my wits ends. What do I do next? And, you know, that's where the collaboration begins. Yeah. Amazing breakdown. And I actually really enjoy that story, how it kind of progressed out of necessity. And also it was you learning 
along the way because I think a lot of us, you know, young trainers as we get into it, it's like, oh, it's just the workouts you can like yeah. work it out. And, and especially someone who, you know, played sports and never really got out of shape per se as a, as a young kid. It's like you always just did stuff and you were kind of just like in shape without really having to go through this crazy transformation type of thing. And so you think, well, why can't other people just do this? And then you learn like, oh, people have like all these kind of different issues, all these different life stressors and all these different things that have happened to them and that they're doing and that they like and dislike and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, okay, well, how do I actually make this realistic? There's another piece of the puzzle here. It's not just like, you know, go bang out a bunch of pushups and you're going to like look good. Like, you know, yeah. you're, you're not an 18 year old kid. You can't just, you know, walk in the gym, take three deep breaths and start growing muscle. Like there's, there's a little bit, there's a little bit more going on here. So, um, it's nice that how that, how that whole thing evolves and you just learn through it. Right. And I think that a lot of people, uh, miss that. And, and not that, you know, the main audience here is like other trainers, but like younger trainers, like you have to kind of go through this journey on your own. It's one thing to know how to train yourself. It's a completely different thing, how to train someone else. And so, but it's just part of the, part of the journey. Definitely. And I, I like that you mentioned and kind of pointed out that all of these transitions were born out of necessity. So, you know, again, I go into a client's house for the first time. I was 16, 17 years old when I started training people who hired me then. God bless them. I don't know. But um, yeah, jokes aside, wonderful people. But, you know, I go in and thinking, you know, OK, the most important thing for this client is periodization. We need to make sure that, you know, they're you know, we're doing this sort of, you know, peak and then we're doing a taper and we're going to manipulate these variables this at the other and then wait a minute, this doesn't actually matter a whole lot because they feel like shit during their workouts because they haven't been eating very well. So, okay, I guess I need to help them more with their nutrition. And then it's, well, it doesn't matter if I give them grocery lists if they have no idea how to manage their stress and food is their only coping mechanism. But wait a minute, half the reason they're stressed all the time is because they don't sleep super well and they're always, you know, they're on their heels logistically throughout the week feeling like they're always behind. So I should be helping them with their sleep as well. So it was very much a necessity-based thing where, um, you know, I want to say chicken in the chicken in the egg, but kind of of like, okay, this is the issue. Oh, wait a minute. It's because of this. Oh, wait a minute. It's because of this. And I don't mean to make things sound unnecessarily complex here because ultimately, you know, good stress management, progressive strength training, um, high quality nutrition, you know, high quality sleep, walking, you know, the recipe for success doesn't actually change a whole lot, but, um, you know, certainly not just the sets and reps and bicep veins and, you know, flat stomach things that most people feel like are perhaps the most important out of the gate tends to be a little bit more nuanced. Again, I don't make it just, I don't mean to make it sound like this impossible math equation, overly complex, but definitely much a necessity based thing where, okay, we think this is the problem, but is this perhaps the symptom of something mm -hmm. else that's going on? If we address that, you know, all of a sudden these other things kind of go away. And oftentimes for most people, it's not that you need to specifically address each of those things in this grand elaborate fashion. A lot of times it's like, Hey, if we just, we find the, the, the thing that you are most likely to start doing, if we just start there, other stuff happens to fall in place. If it's the sleep for some person, for some people, we start with the sleep and all of a sudden they just like, they feel better. And then, so their nutrition gets better and then they have more energy for the workouts and it all kind of just falls into place. But the starting point can be anywhere. And I think that's where a lot of messaging gets missed on or misinterpreted maybe on social media is someone will say, Hey, I did this diet and it made me lose like all this weight. Or I started doing this one sleep trick and I lost 30 pounds. It's like, well, is it that, or is it this like large cascade of events that happened because you started with that? And, uh, and this is where things are missed. It's like, there's not a secret, but sometimes that little one thing can just be the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back or, or fix the camel's back, I guess, in, sure. in, this, yeah. in this analogy. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And this is where I like to look at, um, you know, a lot of people are obviously stuck in the cycle of feeling like I should do this. I need to be doing that. I, you know, this is supposed to be happening and you can end up with this big sense of overwhelm of, you know, the 297 tips and tricks that you see on social media on any given day for how to manage your health and fitness. But if we were to brain dump all of those on a like actual piece of paper, writing down, I feel like I need to do this, I need to work on this, I'm trying to fix this, etc. You can essentially run through that list and look at if I were to just nail one of these things, which one has the biggest spillover effect to every single other habit? So you started to mention, you know, somebody dialing in their sleep. I'm a massive fan of um, focusing on how somebody spends, say, the last hour or so of their day. And again, this may seem like you know, a lot of people want to focus on sets and reps and protein totals, this, that, the other, and that's fine. And that has its place. But in this hypothetical, let's say we focus, focus on dialing in that last hour of the day and you use it to pack the next day's meals to, 
or plan the next day's meals, just basically so you hit the ground running the next day to ideally unplug and do something that is not, you know, you being glued to a screen to just thinking ahead to the day as a whole. Okay, well, typically I, you know, I'm supposed to work out on the way home from work, but I have to, you know, pick up my kid from this specific thing. So let me play the tape forward, think of a potential obstacle and then come up with some sort of rain date or alternative plan, et cetera. And just by focusing on in this hypothetical, that 60 minute window before you go to bed, you've now removed nine points of friction the next day. You wake up, your meals are already packed, so you don't feel like you're in a rush the second you wake up. There's very little decision fatigue because ideally you've already planned your meals in advance. You don't feel like you got caught with a a quote-unquote curveball that, oh no, I won't have time to work out today. I have to pick up little Bobby from soccer. Like You know that in advance. So again, by focusing on one thing, on this hypothetical, what could be very long list, you have this spillover effect where it takes a lot of things uh, and makes them non-issues, if that makes sense. 100% makes sense. I think even to sum that up, like one of the most important fitness tools is simply just a calendar. Like if you were able to just organize your life in a way that not even organize it, but just understand the things that you have to do. I know I've got to pick up Bobby from soccer practice at this time. I've got to be here. I've got to be there. I've got to be there. It's like, okay, great. Now we know what has to be done and how can we fit in workouts, grocery shopping, cooking, you know, whatever, all the things that you need to do that to contribute to your health and fitness. And if you can simply like take the 10 minutes and it's not an exaggeration that it could just be 10 minutes. Like what do I need to do tomorrow to figure that out and then fit everything else in? It's going to make a world of a difference. And we all know that we, I don't want to say all know that that's probably incorrect, but like most people have more time than we think we do. We end up wasting time, like doing other stuff. And yes, you know, single mom working three jobs, four kids. I I get it. Not, not talking to you, but (laughs) You know, for most people, like there's time to do stuff that you end up spending on other things. And until you're aware of what those other things are and what is actually taking up your time, it's very hard to make those adjustments. Definitely. And I I put out a post yesterday, not to plug my own work, but um, I put out a post yesterday giving the very, very specific percentages of your week that the most common health and fitness recommendations are. And I'm actually going to pull this up in real time. Bear with Mm -hmm. me. But, um, you know, and the reason I did it is, you know, not to make anybody feel called out, but I think when most people, I think even including coaches and trainers, hear the word meal prep, to some degree, we might associate that with spending the entire Sunday on the grill, making 14 pounds of chicken, rice, and broccoli, and just like, you know, kind of letting your life pass by. Yep. And the, you know, the meal prep example I gave, if you do Monday to Wednesday's meals on Sunday, for 60 minutes. And it's very realistic to do that. And we can go down that rabbit hole as well. And then Thursday to Saturdays, same thing, another 60 minutes, the weekly commitment is 0.017% of your week. And again, I won't yeah. you know, just read this entire post here, but pretty much everything was less than 1% of your week. And I will not be that 20 something year old who does not have kids who insists that we all have the same 24 hours in a day. You had mentioned the single mother of three example. My life, my, you know, lifestyle demands looks very, very different. So again, the point of this post was not to make anybody feel called out, but instead to make virtually anybody realize how digestible uh, and how tangible this stuff is. It's very much within reach. And this is not to say you're going to be firing all cylinders at all times, but if you see that three 30 to 45 minute strength training workouts and pulling this post back up here ends up being 0.01.3 try that again 0.013 percent of your week you go okay maybe i don't feel like i can swing three but when i see that percentage okay I, i feel like i can at least get two of those things in so Again, that that post times well with this conversation. And then from an action step perspective, um, weekly calendar audits go a very long way. Uh, And I'm sure you have your clients do the very same thing where, hey, let's not leave the stuff to chance. Let's think ahead to what you have going on this week. And I think one of the reasons why people tend to blow this off is because I really can't think of a less flashy, less sexy thing than, hey, um, pull up your calendar, see what you have going on this week and plug in a walk or your meal prep session, whatever, you know, compared to the other stuff you might see on social media or the cover of a magazine where it's like this one weird berry from Brazil boosts your metabolism 33%. That, okay, I'll get the berry. Whereas we're sitting here saying, hey, pull out your calendar, you know, treat it like an appointment. So I, I get it. It's not the flashiest thing in the world. But if you go through the very simple audit of, you know, the last 50 times I entered the week without a very clear plan. How did those weeks go compared to even just the last 10 times I actually mapped this stuff out in advance? How did those go? And then, okay, fine. I'll actually get this stuff done. I'll commit to it. 
for me, what all this comes down to is really just bringing awareness. It's not so much that in that kind of post you are judging anyone for like, oh, it's only zero point whatever percent. Like you're not doing that at all. It's just like this is these are the facts. Your emotions are attached to these facts are are a separate issue. And like that is it's still a thing that we need to address, but it's a separate thing. And so there are multiple ways, I think, to attack these problems. One of them is spending the time. So you spend the time in the kitchen that 60 minutes twice a week or whatever it is. You can spend more money on it by buying meal prep services and using those things. And that's a viable solution as well, but it costs more money. And so it's like nothing is for free. It's either going to cost you time, money, or effort, right? And and some combination of those three, but you can push either one of those in any direction to make it happen. I think the most realistic point of that is what are you wanting to happen and what are you willing and able to do? If those things don't match up, then you've got to change one or the other. And that's a very difficult realization, I think, for a lot of people to come to. Definitely. And actually, before we hit record here, you know, we were talking about, hey, is there anything that's particularly top of mind, anything that we feel like we should be focusing on here? And you bringing this up, which I'm so glad you did, uh, reminds me of, and again, I, I swear I'm not trying to plug my own posts here, but something that I'm, uh, I've been drafting, uh, which is that there are a finite amount of truly solid solutions to any health and fitness problem. And to go with this kind of meal prep prep example, hey, I'm having a hard time being consistent with my nutrition. This is where we might say, oh, have you considered you know, prepping some things in advance? That way it's lower friction for you to stick to your plan. Oh, well, I don't really like leftovers. Okay. Um, are you open to you know, just cooking more often throughout the day. Because if you don't want to prep in advance, you're just going to have to cook more often. Uh, I don't really have a whole lot of time. Like, okay, um, well, you could invest in a meal prep service of some kind. Well, I don't really want to spend the money on that. <laughs> okay, uh, well, if you're going to eat out more often, you're going to have to sacrifice a fair amount in each of these settings. Well, All right, so we had a little uh, connection issue. We lost connection and I missed what Sam was saying, but it was great. So uh, take take that from the top. Of course, forgive me if I'm being redundant and any part of that audio was salvaged, but uh, we were starting to talk about how uh, there are only, in terms of truly solid solutions to any health and fitness problem, there's a finite amount of those. So the example I was starting to give is, you know, hey, I'm having a hard time being consistent with my nutrition. Okay. Are you open to prepping your food in advance? Well, I don't really like leftovers. Okay. Are you open to cooking more often? Because if you don't prep in advance, you're going to have to cook more often. Well, I don't really have a whole lot of time. Okay. Are you open to investing in a meal prep service? Well, I don't want to spend on that. I'm like, okay. Well, if you're eating out very often based on convenience, you're just going to have to sacrifice a fair amount in these settings. Your meals have to be pretty simple, pretty plain. Well, I don't want to deprive myself. I'm like, that's it. That's the whole toolbox. And obviously, you know, I'm being at least somewhat facetious when I say this. And it's rare that I have somebody actually meet every sentence with a sentence like that. But to be honest, a lot of people aren't that far off from that, you know, half-assed little dialogue I just gave. Another example would be getting more steps when it's cold. You know, me being in the Boston area, you being in Canada, it's something a lot of our clients deal with. And, mm-hmm. you know, hey, it's really cold out. And obviously Canada's next level cold and I'm having a hard time getting my steps in. Okay. For a lot of our clients, it's like, hey, you've lived here your whole life. It's not really a surprise. Have you thought about bundling up? Okay. Well, it's still too cold. <laughs> All right. And try it again. It it gets me and people like, can you believe how cold it is? I'm like, weren't you born here? Is this? (laughs) Yeah, I can. It's not your first, it's not your first winter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I believe it. But so, okay, bundle up. Well, it's still too cold. That's fine. Uh, Have you considered going to the gym to just pace on a treadmill, stream your favorite show? It's going to be heated there. Well, I don't want to go all the way to the gym just to get steps in. Like, okay, what about investing in a a walking pad at home so you don't have to go anywhere? Well, I don't want to spend on that. And again, I could give a thousand examples here, but the recurring theme is there are a finite amount of truly solid, non-gimmicky, non-horseshit solutions to any problem you may be dealing with. So this is where we look at not necessarily which one is the most appealing, because in many cases, you know, going to the gym just to walk on a treadmill or walking outside in Canada in February Neither are overly appealing, but which one is at least the most tolerable? Mm-hmm. Not always going to be a hack. There's not always going to be a workaround or a tip or trick. Let me look at what I have in this toolbox. Again, for most problems, we are maybe looking at three to five solutions that are truly solid. Which one of these can I digest? Which one is the most tolerable? We go with that. But we can't, to your point, have that disconnect of here's the thing that I say that I want and I'm unwilling to do all of the things that could move the needle the most on that. Hopefully I recap that okay. Again, I know we lost connection for a second. 
Yeah, no, that, that was phenomenal. And I, I completely agree with that. I think this is also part of the huge value in actually having a coach. It's not that any of those solutions are rocket science that, oh my God, I, this like PhD level solution. It's just like through experience, through ourselves and through others, we've found all of these little workarounds like, okay, well, how do I get my steps into the cold? Well, like wearing a jacket is a really good one. Can you walk <laughs> up and down the stairs of your building? Can you like pace laps around the kitchen? Can you drive to the mall and walk around the mall? Can you, you know, X, Y, Z do all these things? And again, they're not revolutionary, but sometimes it's like, oh yeah, I could just do that. And it's so, so, so simple. And then it's like, wow, why didn't I think of that sooner? And like, well, I, I don't know, but I did. And it works. So there you go. Right. Definitely. And I mean, even coaches and trainers are not exempt from this. I have a coach myself that I'm working with right now. And I'm glad that you mentioned that none of this stuff, I don't want to say none of it. You can get fairly nuanced. Most of it is not rocket science. It's not groundbreaking. It's very, very rare that you or I will say something to a client that they go, wow, I have never thought about that. Getting more protein keeps me full. Eating fruits and vegetables <laughs> is important. If I don't hydrate, I feel worse. Again, the stuff itself isn't that groundbreaking. A lot of times I think it's just, you know, the upside is clarifying and kind of articulating, hey, here are the three to five tools that might work. Tell me which one you are going to utilize. Tell me how you're going to do it. Tell me when you're going to do it and then report back to me when that's done. So my point being, my relationship with my own coach is very similar in that it's very rare and I, I say this with no disrespect to him. He's brilliant, but it's very rare that he gives me something that I go, wow, like never thought of that shit. Like, oh, that's new. It's I know, I know. And like, I'm going to get myself to do it. And as an aside, but very related here, that's why so many people who say, I know what I need to do. I just need to get myself to do it. End up in the same place three to six to 12 months later, because Beyond a certain point, it's not really a lack of knowledge that's preventing you from succeeding. Once we figure out that carbs aren't fattening and you don't have to do an hour of fasted cardio every day, once we kind of get past those initial stages, it's do I have external systems and accountability sources in place that get me to follow through with the things that I already know I should be doing? Again, it's the same reason why you know coaches and trainers hire other coaches and trainers. A lot of people look at that decision. I know I've had friends and family who are like, why are you hiring some like isn't that exactly what you do I'm like yeah but i you know we all wrestle 99% of us wrestle with the same consistency issues when we don't have any sort of external accountability and it's not cuz we don't know what to do we just need a push to do those things that are technically somewhat obvious yeah all of the information the how to or the what to do it's all out there we've we've pretty like we've solved this issue there's yeah. you know some arguments and like you know some micronutrient extreme training things that you know the top 1% of uh, you know olympic athletes and these kind of things and sure like that i mean for you and i like those things are oh, i don't know but i don't want to speak for you but like those things are interesting for yeah. me to to read about and learn about and whatever but i don't use them with my clients because like it doesn't matter if broccoli has more sulforaphane than you know <laughs> kale it, sure. because you know Susan hasn't eaten a vegetable in three weeks. So like it, it doesn't like that's not the thing that actually matters. It's like how do we get people to do the things that they again know that they should be doing. Another post that you put up along along this line a couple of days ago or within this week was about the the magic behind door number three. And I thought this was such a brilliant analogy where it's like people want I'll, I'll let you explain it, but but talk about that, you know, that door number three phenomenon. Yeah, of course. And as I'm kind of introducing this topic, I'll pull up the post. So I have specific um, uh, references top of mind, but um, something I see often, and this is in line with, you know, the the topic we're just coming off of where, well, I'm not much of a leftovers person. No, I don't have time. No, I don't want to spend on that. And no, I'm unwilling to sacrifice at a restaurant. There is no magic, in this case, it'd be door number five, but there is no magical <laughs> door number three that allows you to circumvent some level of sacrifice or time or effort. And if you look at the way a lot of people do approach health and fitness, they're operating as if they're holding out for that door to exist. So a classic example, I don't even know if I included it in this post, but just off the top of my head, I want to lose weight as quickly as possible. Okay. With that, comes a much higher risk that you will regain all that weight on top of a bunch of other issues that, you know, perhaps we can dive into after. And then on the other side of things, we have door number two, which is, okay, I want to make sure that I actually keep this weight off. So I'm comfortable with a much slower, more sustainable pace. Well, a lot of people don't want to hear that. They want to say, okay, I want door number three, which is, I want to lose weight extremely quickly and I want to have no issues keeping it off whatsoever. And 
99 out of 100 people who hear that will say, well, of course, I know that's not realistic, but they're operating as if that's the case, that they are, in fact, holding out for that. And you see this happen so often. Again, we just gave that, you know, steps example with, you know, Canada and Boston where it's, you know, I want to do this, but I don't want to have to deal with this. And this is where as coaches, of course, we have to be honest and say like, hey, I can't really create that third door from you. Yes, there are plenty. And I'm not trying to be all gloom and doom here. So let me just say there are tons of things coaches can do that can minimize the suck of one of those first two doors that you have to walk through. So again, I'm sitting here saying like bundle up and go outside in the, you know, 20 degree Canada weather, or the sub freezing weather. Um, and again, I don't mean to, to sound like overly harsh or like, Hey, this thing has to be miserable. There are things we can do to make it suck less. So, you know, just the simple example of, yeah, why don't you periodically just stop at the gym when you're right home, pull up the show that you were going to watch on the couch anyway set the treadmill even at two and a half miles an hour, time's going to fly by. Okay. That that's tolerable. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, yeah, there's just, there's no door number three for a lot of these situations where we can have all of the upside of a, in this case, like a very rigid, strict approach, but not deal with any of the symptoms of an approach like that. We have to pick one of those first two doors and be willing to accept the trade-offs. And um, at the risk of sounding redundant here, there are a lot of things you can do to make those things more painless. So I'm not saying both doors have to suck. But we can, you know, we have to acknowledge that that door number three just doesn't exist most of the time. In the true nature of the internet, there's always things are proposed in a dichotomous fashion. So it's like either fast and sustainable or or fast and unsustainable or slow and sustainable. And it's like this one is right and that one is wrong. And I don't think that that's really fair to say because there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Like the slow and steady approach is actually not ideal for some people. For most people, it probably is. But for some people, it's like the progress is almost like too slow at the beginning where they their motivation just goes down, their trust in the in the process or in the system or the coach or the whatever goes down. And so that that's like a downside that people need to be I think, made aware of. And again, it's just understanding what are the pros and cons to this approach? It's like, okay, we're going to do this. It's going to be really sustainable, but like you're only going to lose, you know, half a pound a week. It's like, okay, if you accept that, then then let's go ahead and don't, don't, you know, let's try and get ahead of the month down the road where it's like, oh, I'm only down two or three pounds. Like what's going on? I'm like, well, that's, a, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Like we're, we're, we're right on the money. Like we're doing phenomenal. This is great, but we've got to just set those expectations accordingly. And on, on the client side, it's like, you have to understand that and be open to communicate that with the coach as well. Yeah. And to bring a, bring back up a point that you made a few minutes ago, we also have to look at what somebody is willing to do. So in this situation, if we have somebody who's disappointed, they're only quote unquote, only losing a life changing amount of weight over time, by the way, but two to three pounds <laughs> per month. Okay, if we were to accelerate that, it's likely, almost certain, you'll have to make a higher percentage of your own meals, you'll have to go to bed earlier, you'll have to sit out the next round of drinks when nobody else around you is, you're going to have to go outside and walk in the cold periodically when, you know, it's not overly appealing to, you know, insert list of more sacrifices here. Uh, Well, you know, I don't want to do that because of this and I don't want to do this because of that. That is also 100% fine. I'm not here to tell you what, ironically enough, what you should or shouldn't do. I'm here to show you what the hypothetical roadmap is to reach the thing that you say you want. And then if we feel like that thing and what you're willing or not willing to do to get there or not in line, that's fine. One of those things, we have to pull one of those levers in a different direction. So, you know, if you're somebody who, you know, the idea of own, quote unquote, only losing two to three pounds in a month is not slow or is not fast enough for you. Okay. I'm not here to you know, question that too much, but then we have to turn up the sacrifice side of the equation. Um, but yeah, no, to go back to the point, you know, you started this conversation with or this topic. Um, yeah, it, it's very much not a dichotomy. And oftentimes we're sitting here saying slow and steady, slow and steady. But I've had plenty of clients who come out of the gate with a fairly aggressive weight loss goal. Typically, if they're losing just for a little more context here, typically, if they're trying to lose a fairly meaningful percentage of their overall body weight, you know, I'm not a huge fan of goal weight specifically, but if they loosely know that they're trying to lose, you know, 40, 50, 60 plus pounds, um, maintenance calories are a little bit higher. So you have that bigger budget to work with. You can come out of the gate, you know, a, a little more aggressive. So it's not a one size fits all recommendation, but um, yeah, certainly not a, certainly not a dichotomy there. So with that, what are some of the strategies that you would employ with that person so that 
we mitigate or reduce the chance of the bounce back weight. If they want to like come out the gate hot, it's like, okay, we know that we're going to do this for two months. Maybe we're going to aim for like 15 pounds in the first two months if they've got a lot to lose, whatever it is. And, but then we're going to settle into something a little bit different. Like how do you make that transition with them so that you, again, mitigate the, the bounce back weight? A lot of times what I'm looking for if somebody is on uh, a little bit more of an aggressive protocol would be their biofeedback and without nerding out too much here just to keep things simple, essentially just how your body is responding. So obviously a lot of people, if they heard, I can lose two and a half pounds, two pounds per week on this plan, sign me up. But I, as the coach, will also look at all the other symptoms of that. Okay, their hunger ratings are getting higher and higher. They're having a harder time performing well in the gym. They're not recovering super well. You know, they're telling me that, you know, you know, again, this list of dieting symptoms that comes with being in a more aggressive deficit. So that's where the only logical responsible thing to do is to pump the brakes a little bit. Because I think of not so great biofeedback is almost like a, a check engine light being on in the car. Yes, we can theoretically keep driving, but it's likely that it's going to bite us in the ass at some point. So certainly we look at the physiological side of things, keep a very close pulse on that and pump the brakes if and when necessary. The other thing is looking at the psychological side of things. So this is where I will always do my best to proactively ask clients simply how they're feeling about their current protocol. Because as we both know, a lot of people will suffer in silence and you know feel super strapped with the calorie range and be having a really hard time. But from a very well-intentioned place, they don't necessarily want to say that and speak up and say, hey, I'm actually really struggling with this protocol. So certainly staying on top of the psychological side of things as well. And even looking for symptoms of those psychological struggles. For example, if somebody's on a more aggressive protocol, and they hit their calorie range every single day for 13 days in a row. And then I see that they had a 4,700 calorie day. It's like, okay, that's unlikely that was rooted in hunger. Very few people are actually hungry for 4,700 calories. There's probably some underlying feelings of deprivation going on that got them to the point where ignore all the scale stuff for a second, you know, because that's obviously a lot of people's biggest concern. They're at the point now where when they go what they deem as quote unquote off track, they feel like they can't reel it in and let me get it all in while I still can. So much more succinctly, looking at somebody's biofeedback, how is their body responding? Yes, okay, everyone thinks the scale going down is always inherently a great thing, but we have to look at all the symptoms that might come with that and make sure that we don't creep too far into unsustainable territory. And then also looking at the psychological side of things as well both with ongoing dialogue. So um, of course, if you're a coach listening to this, communicating with your clients proactively, and if you're a client of a coach listening to this, not being afraid to put that stuff on your coach's radar, hey, I'm really struggling because their hands are tied if they don't know what's going on. And then that last point, of course, is, you know, you know, if we're seeing a 4,000 calorie day, just to keep going with that example, it's likely, very likely, either they were super drunk or there's a feeling of underlying <laughs> deprivation going on where, hey, I'm having a hard time reeling it in. So, okay, we get to pump the brakes a little bit and find something that is um, more in the sustainable territory. Yeah. And, and also just understanding what happened. I think a 4,000 calorie day could be completely unrelated to their ability to like it's unlikely but it could be completely unrelated to their ability to follow through it's just like oh you know it was a birthday and this happened and that happened or like some crazy stressful like one-off random thing happened and i just like ate my you know face off like okay it happens but then we need that strategy like well how do we how do we reel it back in like you were saying how do we get back in and so this is where cheat days or diet breaks kind of come into play and can be used strategically but are also often misused because sometimes you'll plan a cheat day when you don't really need it. You go overboard and then you feel like, oh, the scale spiked up. I feel sluggish. Got, you know, my workout the next day is not great, yada, yada, yada. And now you're off track. So mm-hmm. barring that, like what are some things that you use to kind of reel things back in when you have an off track day, whether it's planned or unplanned? Well, I think even on the proactive side of things, and I'm glad you mentioned this as well, diet breaks something that a lot of people really resist because they hear diet break and they think of it as almost like a break on progress. Like, what do you mean Mm -hmm. we're going to bring my calories up for a couple of days? Like, I I don't want to slow my progress. But I always think of this, you know, to use a lifting analogy, if you're doing a bench press, let's say week after week after week, and over time, you're starting to feel your shoulder a little bit more, not in a good way. It always makes sense to say, swap the exercise or take the deload before your body makes you take the deload. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you got something going on. 
I have very similar feelings in the world of dieting where, okay, yeah, things are still moving, things are still moving, but it's in our best interest to stay ahead of that proverbial shoulder issue creeping up. So if we see those 4,000 calorie days happening more and more often, if we see those signs of not so great biofeedback popping up more and more often, let's not wait until you feel like you've totally run yourself into the ground and you have the seven-day food bender where you feel like you can't get back on track and be more consistent. And let's stay ahead of that with something like a diet break. So Obviously, this is going to be very case by case in terms of, you know, how frequent we're actually turning that card. But the recurring theme would be turning the diet break card perhaps a little sooner than you think you need to, because I'd much rather have somebody almost feel like they're itching to get back into a deficit than feeling like they have to white knuckle their way through every single week. So again, a lot of this is going to depend on you know, somebody's uh, lifestyle, honestly, what their uh, maintenance calories are. So how aggressive or non-aggressive we can be, their travel schedule, their stress levels as a whole, et cetera. But you know, the vast majority of my clients, and obviously I'm generalizing heavily here, maybe we're looking at eight to 12, maybe 14 weeks of dieting before we pump the brakes a little bit and say, hey, let's do, whether it's a shorter diet break, a bit of a longer term maintenance phase. And again, I'm generalizing heavily here. Some people do a bit more of a six week sprint and they come out of it. You know, Some people can get away with quote unquote dieting for 18 to 20 weeks, which sounds crazy long on paper, but if they're starting with very high maintenance calories, they might not be kind of suffering from a lot of those same symptoms of biofeedback because they can be in a deficit and still have a lot of food on their plate, relatively speaking. So very case by case, but um, as a whole, dieting for more than a few months at a time without proactively taking a diet break is a recipe not only for physiologically not feeling great if you're actually in a deficit, which of course a lot of people <laughs> aren't actually in a deficit, but also psychologically just getting stuck in that dieting mindset of I feel like I'm dieting and restricted all the time. It just wears you down. And again, how many people have their life situation so dialed in and so controlled that they can easily, quote unquote, easily stay in a diet for that long? There's going to be birthdays, holidays, special occasions, work trips, any number of things that's like, oh, okay, well, it's making making this harder. And and that's okay. If you're okay to, you know, again, white knuckle it through those things and make the sacrifices needed to like say no to the birthday cake and say no to the drinks and whatever it is, then then fine, like by all means. Go, go right ahead. But if that's going to make it worse for you long-term, it's very okay to be like, all right, the next three, four days, bring your calories up to maintenance. You have a work trip, you have a, this thing. Good. And then we're right back on track on Monday. Now that can't happen every single week because yeah, yeah. now we're, you know, we're not, we're, we're just moving the ball backwards or not getting ahead in one, on one hand, like you could be not moving ahead and sometimes maintenance itself is progress. Like this is a concept I think maybe we should talk about that. A lot of people don't realize that like at some point you got to stop losing weight. Like your goal is not to be losing weight for forever. The whole concept of a sustainable diet is is flawed in and of itself because you don't want to be dieting for forever. You diet to get to where you want and then you stay there and you hope that you know no crazy stuff happens in your life that knocks you off that. But ideally you get to your weight, your body composition and then you know, you, know, you fluctuate if you want to tighten up a little bit for vacation or whatever. But you know, we were talking about a fluctuation of 5 pounds plus or minus your maintenance weight. And that's where you want to live for the most of the time. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned one that maintenance is a range because as I'm sure we've both seen quite a bit, people get to their all time, you know, low body weight, their goal weight, you know, they fit in a certain outfit, a certain body fat percentage, et cetera. And they stray away from that at all. And they dive headfirst back into a diet again, yeah. not realizing that again, maintenance is a range. It's not your all time lowest across the board. Um, and I think something else that a lot of people overlook is exactly what you mentioned. Maintenance is the ultimate goal. To quote Marcy Nevin, maintenance is where the magic happens in terms of more food flexibility, you know, a longer numerical runway to get higher quality foods in, better workouts, better recovery, like, you know, better overall health. The list of things goes on and on and on when you're actually operating at maintenance. And the other thing to consider here is that, and I think this is actually becoming a more popular topic in the fitness space, which is great. Most people don't have a weight loss problem. They have a weight maintenance problem. And certainly a lot of people struggle with both losing weight in the first place. And I'm not trying to invalidate that at all. Um, but there are quite a few people, I'd say most people who have lost weight a bazillion times, but they've never actually learned how to maintain it. So to actually backtrack a little bit, that is one of the benefits of proactively taking diet breaks is, okay, I've never been somebody who has been able to take my foot off the gas a little bit 
without taking it all the way off, going buck wild and having to go back and just diet yet again over and over. So being proactive with practicing that skill is a massive form of progress. It's just not one that's going to show up on the scale. And I'm not trying to shit on the scale. I'm overwhelmingly a fan of using it as a progress assessment tool. But when I say progress, I don't want progress and downward scale trends to be inherently synonymous because there are other forms of progress as we often talk about one of them being hey for the first time perhaps ever i'm operating within a you know three to five maybe six or seven pound range and i've been doing that for months and i've never really done that my whole life so yeah maintenance is uh, certainly a highly underrated goal and form of progress and something that um, far more people need to be uh, comfortable with and willing to practice because it is very much a skill to break out of that. I'm either doing, you know, 800 calorie Atkins or I am going buck wild and it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth because that's exhausting. That's such an interesting reframe that weight loss is not actually the problem. It's weight maintenance because you're right. There's how many people listening? How many times have you lost the same 10, 15, 30 pounds? Like as coaches, we hear this all the time. I've done this, it worked. I've done this, it worked. And it's like, okay, well, the first question, and sometimes I ask this, it depends on the person and the relationship yeah. with, with the person, but it's like, well, if it works so good last time, why don't you just do it again? Like, well, okay, because it obviously didn't work because there was a problem with maintaining what whatever results they had. And this is where the methods come in. And I think this is part of the problem with a lot of the, you know, the named diets as, as we'll refer mm. to them is like, they're great at producing weight loss. It's if you cut out all your carbs, like you will almost certainly lose weight. Is that a way to live your life? Probably not, but it doesn't offer any sort of like maintenance strategy. Well, how do you reintroduce this intelligently in a way that's not going to make you blow back up and all this stuff? And this is where a lot of the the skill and the hardship is. So that's such an interesting reframe, I think. I think that's just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, in terms of another um, very tactical, tangible strategy, because I'm a big action step guy, you know, with something like this, um, this is where I think, and bear with me for a second, because I know this is a, a, a buzz topic right now. This is where I think reverse diets, like in some ways they're extremely overrated and that people tend to dramatically overblow the physiological upside of doing a reverse diet. But logistically speaking, and I'm, I'm stealing the sentiment from uh, Cody McBroom just to give credit where it's due. He made a case for doing a reverse diet, which for anybody listening who's not familiar, the general idea is that you gradually reintroduce calories over time. And the case he made for it wasn't because of the physiological, theoretical physiological upside that a lot of people tend to um, dramatize. It was more so there is a, or more so, try that again in English. There is more of a middle <laughs> ground between your current deficit protocol and maintenance. And instead of just jumping five to 600 calories overnight, you know, let's add 250 calories back to your range hang out there for a few weeks. So we're purposefully taking that foot off the pedal a little bit more slowly. Let's add another 200 calories back to your plate, et cetera. So I'm not advocating for, you know, sometimes you see these crazy, you know, 100 calories a week for 10 days at a time kind of thing, because I think that's just as exhausting as dieting itself. But I do think there is a case to be made for, um, and obviously this isn't one size fits all. Some people do really well jumping straight to maintenance, but if you are somebody who has struggled with the yo-yo stuff before, I do think that is something to at least consider as almost a, a pseudo reverse diet where, okay, let's get you a chunk of the way up to maintenance, not necessarily all the way there. So your protocol still calls for a level of planning and sacrifice that's in between dieting and not dieting. And then eventually, again, I'm not saying to drag this out. This could be, you know, in the case of six to eight weeks or something like that, we then get you back to maintenance, then hang out there. And then you can pull back from some of the more precise measures using a food scale, planning everything in advance and et cetera. So just in terms of a, a tangible strategy for people to consider, I do think there would be a case to be made for some, not everybody, some people using something that resembles a for, uh, reverse diet, even if the physiological benefits tend to be overblown quite a bit. This is one of the reasons why I love podcasts so much, because if you made a Instagram post that said that, everyone would just scroll past it and like, you know, whatever. And not because it's yeah. you, it's just because like that yeah. has way too much yeah, nuance and too guy. much, <laughs> and, too, and it, there's too much logic involved in that answer. And it makes so much sense. And it's so well said and so perfect, but it's like, it's not hard hitting enough. You didn't throw out these like random physiological things that people don't understand and too like barely exist to say like, oh, you should definitely do this or you should definitely not do this. It's like, okay, we can, we can call it a reverse diet for lack of like a better, just to put a name to 
into it. But really, we're just like slowly finding a way to eat a little bit more calories and be comfortable with that and find out how to actually live in a in a maintenance mode rather than like just talking about it all as calories. Because you're right, like no one is accurate enough at their tracking or their their intake or their absorption to be like, I can actually increase my calories by a hundred calories per week. Like yeah. unless you're gonna, you know, like no no one no one can do that. And it, and it's just completely unrealistic. And it's not doing anything for you. But if it allows you it, the only way you'd even do that is by doing things that are also unsustainable. You'd find yeah. those like hundred calorie like snack cookie packs and be like, oh, I can eat one of those, which are not even tasty. You don't like, and you're not going to eat them forever more. So it's like, well, how do you, ha- what is a hundred calories of actual food that you're going to actually eat? That little hundred calorie cookie pack doesn't help you do that. So we yeah. got to be a little bit more realistic at that. But again, this is just why I love podcasting because we can, <laughs> like we have the time and space yeah. and hopefully people's attention enough to, to actually like parse that out in a way that makes sense and fully explains the idea. So thank you for that. That was, that was brilliant. Yeah, of course. And actually I want to highlight something you just mentioned that I overlooked, which is the psychological upside to, again, we'll call this a reverse diet, gradually adding food back to your plate at the end of a diet. Um, you had mentioned people getting more comfortable with the idea of adding more food back to their plate. And something we talked about a few minutes ago was how a lot of people get very nervous at the end of a diet of, I don't want to I don't want to quote unquote blow my progress. I don't want to gain everything back, et cetera. So even if physiologically it's totally fine to just jump straight to maintenance and operate there, you know, you're going to see somewhat of a jump on the scale. And even if it's mostly water retention, for a lot of people, that can be a bit of a trigger to send them back in a dieting direction. So I think one of the other main benefits to gradually weaning off of dieting in a very structured way is that for people who are intimidated about the idea. And that's understandable, right? So many people we work with have been always told for 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years that less food on your plate is always better. And now when they finally had the results that they want, we're saying, okay, now we're going to add food to your plate. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that, <laughs> that seems at odds with everything I've been told in every magazine cover and every infomercial and every social media post ever. So my point being, I'm so glad you highlighted the comfort level thing as well. Because say somebody finishes, you know, their, their dieting journey at, you know, 1500 to 1650 calories per day okay, go to 2,100. It's like, Sam, I don't want to gain all that weight back. Like we know fundamentally they won't if they're actually operating within that new range, but okay, let's hang out around 1,800 for a few weeks. You'll see those, you know, fewer spikes out of the gate. Not that we want to put the scale on too much of a pedestal, but psychologically that can be a lot easier for people to handle. Again, it still requires a level of planning and moderation and sacrifice that is in line with long-term maintenance, et cetera. Oh, wait a minute. I feel great. You know, my photos and measurements are still, you know, looking the way I want them to look, et cetera. So obviously we want to have a very well-rounded way to assess progress. Biofeedback's in a good place. Okay, it's been a few weeks. I, I feel comfortable with this. Wonderful. Let's add another, I don't know, 200 calories. And I do find that oftentimes people, depending on obviously highly variable, but I find that a lot of people can actually end up a little, at least a little over 500 calories over where they finished their diet, because obviously that's the most classic you know, a deficit recommendation is 500 calories under maintenance. So you theoretically lose about a pound per week. Um, but the reason I say slightly over 500 is I find that people's, you know, they train a little bit harder, they're recovering better, activity levels go up, et cetera. Not that we're doing that stuff to burn more calories, but the net result is often slightly higher maintenance calories than, you know, we expected. So, you know, if somebody's finishing again, that diet on 1500, it's not unrealistic that, if you approach the kind of wean off period in a very structured way, you could finish with a, a maintenance range of 2000 to 2200 calories per day, which again, you say that to most people and they're like, there's no way I would maintain my weight <laughs> on any number that starts with two. And I'm like, yeah, you, you can, you just have to approach it the right way. This brings things full circle a little bit as well because of the confounding variables that happen here. So, you know, someone's gone through this journey, they've changed their behavior and their 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 actions through the week or through the day, right? Where they're just naturally more active. They've been training and they, their training has conceivably been a little bit more dialed. So maybe they've built a little bit more muscle and maybe that whole like adding muscle to your body burns more calories has been like a little bit overblown, but it's like, it's not zero. It's it's not like, you know, you're not going to double your calorie intake, but, but you know, it's, it's something. And so all of these little things that are starting to snowball from the positive actions you've taken allow you to actually make the whole process more 
to, to make the process easier. And it's not just to say like, oh, you can all of a sudden eat 2,200 calories. It's not, it's not all of a sudden. It's, it's after a long time of implementing a lot of big changes that you may or may not have even realized that you've been implementing. And I think that that, like, it's, it's hard to, you can't anticipate that, but it is going to happen. You've just got to trust the process, but that's the most difficult part. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I'm glad you mentioned as well how no individual variable, maybe besides walking a lot more, but that's a topic in itself, but no individual variable is going to make this crazy night and day difference. But to use the example you just mentioned, okay, you put on a little bit more muscle. Is the daily calorie burn from having more muscle is what we once thought it was? No, not necessarily, but just take that for a second. Going from four to 5,000 steps per day to at least seven to 8,000 steps per day. Going from three workouts per week on paper, but you skip half of them once upon a time to now you're actually Mm -hmm. training three days per week. Going to bed an hour earlier and sleeping better. Getting your protein and fiber up, thermic effect of food so the calories you're burning during digestion are a little bit higher. And I'm not saying that's magical. That could be a fairly negligible amount of calories per day. But you take those five or so examples I just gave of a 75 calorie difference here, 100 calorie difference here, 150 calorie difference here. Your maintenance calories could theoretically go up by at least a couple hundred. And that's life-changing for a lot of people to be able to maintain on 2,000 plus instead of, you know, say 1,700 calories for maintenance. And then if and when you have to diet, having to creep meaningfully below 1,700 calories to move the needle in that regard. But the, the main point being here, don't kind of turn your nose up at or sneeze at like, okay, that well, that doesn't seem to make a huge difference in isolation because all of these little habits you're working on during the weight loss process when combined are going to make the weight maintenance process dramatically more uh, realistic and within reach. The way to even make this maybe a little bit more relatable is thinking about it in the reverse. So most people don't actually gain a ton of weight in a very short period of time. Like unless there's some extraneous circumstance, something that happens in your life, like very few people are gaining 30 pounds in like a couple of months. It happens obviously, but not the norm. The norm is like you gain a couple pounds a year, maybe five pounds a year, every year for like 10 years. And you wake up and one day and all of a sudden you're 40, 50 pounds overweight. You just didn't realize it because it was happening slowly. So if we take that four or five pounds, if you prevent yourself from gaining that much, which is we're talking about four or five pounds over a year. So Sam mentioned that, you know, 500 calories a week will get you to lose about a pound a week. We can even make that deficit even smaller to make it five pounds in a year. So if you are just doing that, you're going to offset those things. And so because it's true that you gain weight very slowly when you're not paying attention, you can also do little actions that are going to help you to maintain or lose the weight very slowly as well. And this is how these tiny actions really, you know, again, snowball, not to use that example twice, but snowball into a big positive, uh, positive result over time. Definitely. Yeah. You explained that perfectly. (laughs) Awesome, man. Um, one last thing that I wanted to, uh, just get your thoughts on and, and for you to just define a little bit for people before we close it off here is, letting people know about the concept of weight loss and fat loss. Why are those things different? What do they mean? And how to go about chasing fat loss, which is the thing that people actually want. I know that that could be like a giant thing, but yeah, yeah. No, for sure. No, it's one of my favorite topics. And um, I'm laughing as you're asking me this because uh, I took a public speaking course. This was, you know, it doesn't matter when I took it, um, but, you know, six months ago, whatever it was. And uh, right out of the gate, the gentleman who was running it had us improvise. Well, he asked us, hey, you got to improvise a 10 minute speech in front of this group. And I racked my brain, what could I talk about for 10 minutes very easily? And I went to the weight loss versus fat loss thing because before the class started, you know, me and my classmates saw, hey, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? And I found that this topic came up a lot. So I'm laughing. You know, you said it could be a a topic in itself and it absolutely could be. But um, I will start by saying that I think pretty much everybody I'd venture to say ourselves included very often say weight loss and fat loss fairly interchangeably. So I certainly don't want to be too pedantic about it because if you scroll through my posts, you're going to find me saying weight loss pretty often. But there is an important difference between the two because if we're talking weight loss, we could be talking about anything from obviously body fat, muscle mass. 
uh, glycogen stores and then water retention. So stored energy and then the water associated with that could literally just be gut content, whether or not you've used the bathroom, et cetera. It can be all these variables, you know, sodium, whether you, sodium, whether you trained hard the day before, et cetera. So many things that impact your weight. But what people are actually after, even if we're all saying weight loss, is fat loss specifically. So when you're dieting, the number one goal at all times, and I'm not here to be a dictator and tell people you know what they need to prioritize, but kind of, sort of, <laughs> muscle retention needs to be priority number one at all times, even at the expense of faster scale change. Not only from an aesthetic perspective, because obviously that's what a lot of people hire us for is, you know, I want to look more lean and toned in this at the other. Okay, if that's true. Muscle retention needs to be priority number one, but then also from a health perspective as we age in terms of, you know, your um, overall health in terms of if somebody's prioritizing the things that um, help them maintain muscle, it's likely their bone density is going to be in a better place. Life is often physically easier when you have more muscle, your work capacity, et cetera. So I cannot stress enough while dieting, maintaining muscle and ideally developing a little, although that's more difficult, needs to be priority number one. So we look at, okay, how do we ensure that the weight we're losing is body fat specifically and not muscle mass? And this comes down to four things. Number one, your deficit size. So even if we're doing everything correctly, if I put you in this gigantic deficit and have you crash diet, you're going to lose at least a little bit of muscle. So an intelligent deficit, obviously that varies a lot person to person, but you know, this might be, you know, anywhere from 400 to 600 ish calories under maintenance. And again, there's going to be an exception, you know, some, somebody listening to this, oh, I did fine on 700 under maintenance. That's fine. But roughly call it <laughs> four to 600 under that will help mitigate the risk of muscle loss. After that, we are looking at getting enough protein and, you know, you'll, people will fight to the death over a specific recommendation here. But for a lot of my clients, I like 0.8 grams per pound of body weight up to a certain amount. So depending on somebody's starting weight, if this puts them at like 200 something grams per day, I'd rather use those calories on carbs and fats. But just to get in the ballpark, 0.8 grams per pound of body weight. Number three, we are looking at your sleep because there's actually been research that has shown that if you're not getting very much sleep, and let me also point out new parents, shift workers, et cetera, there are always going to be exceptions to this. And in those cases, I just encourage you to focus on what's actually within your control. But for anybody else who's not getting a lot of sleep because they're just clicking next episode, next episode, next episode, et cetera, <laughs> not only will you actually lose less weight over time, a higher percentage of the weight you do lose will be muscle mass, not body fat. Yeah. And then the fourth one and the biggest needle mover by a mile is whether or not you are utilizing progressive overload in your workouts. So doing tangibly more over time and essentially giving your muscles a reason to stick around, something to signal to them. And obviously I'm, I'm really oversimplifying here, but something to signal to your muscles, hey, we still need you, don't go anywhere. And this is where a lot of people, you know, when they think of a fat loss workout, they are thinking about very high reps, you know, short rest periods, circuit-based stuff, things that make you feel productive. When ironically enough, the best fat loss workouts are the best muscle gain or muscle retention ones, which don't necessarily make you feel crazy productive. For example, you might do, um, I'm going to make this up, but a, you know, a heavy set of eight to 10 on a hack squat and then rest for two minutes to make sure you perform well mm -hmm. on your next set. And I'll be the first to admit that almost feels like you're not quite pushing hard enough. Although a heavy set of hacks for eight to 10, if you are, you know, approaching failure, that's pretty crushing, but I, I you're get gonna feel, You're going to feel something. hundred percent, hundred percent. But I get relative to more boot camp style stuff, which I'm not saying have no benefit. It may not feel as productive, but to recap that the recipe, a moderate calorie deficit, adequate protein, as much high quality sleep as you can possibly get, ideally prior to midnight, get as many pre-midnight hours as you can possibly get. And then the last one is you need to be doing tangibly more. And when I say more, I'm pretty much exclusively referring to weight and then sometimes reps. When I say more, I don't mean you need to add you know, hours and hours and hours in the gym. But, you know, an example, actually, here I am plugging my own posts again, but I just put up a post about how, you know, a common scenario is somebody says, oh, I want better shoulders. And okay, that's fine. But they've been pressing the same weight overhead for months and months and months, often in a class setting. So a sample progression might be, okay, right now you can press a 10 pound dumbbell overhead for three sets of eight reps. Wonderful. 
record that next week, beat your logbook. Even if you do set one is 10, then maybe your next one you get nine and you're fatigued in your last one and you end up with seven. Wonderful. The following week, go back in and try to beat that total amount of reps. And once you've you know gotten the reps up to say that 10 to 12 rep range, add even two and a half pounds, you'll drop back down to seven or eight reps or so. That's fine. Stick with that. You rinse and repeat. It's not the sexiest thing in the world, but that is what's going to produce the most visible change from your workouts, even if it doesn't feel as productive. And hopefully I didn't make that too long-winded because like you said, that could be a topic in itself, but I, I like it a lot. Yeah. That's my bad for asking such a big question right, oh, at, right, at, right at the end, but that was, that was a very succinct and, and good answer. Um, I think that the process is often not very sexy and very cool, but the results from that seemingly quote unquote boring process, like that's what you want. No one is trying to do the coolest, most fun thing. You're trying to get results. And the way to get results is to do the stuff that is quote unquote boring, repetitive, and somewhat difficult in nature, but that gets you what you want. So when you understand that, I think it makes it a lot easier to stick to the things that once again, you know that you should be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, to steal a line as we wrap up here, to steal a line from Brian Cron, are you in the gym for results or entertainment? And again, I don't want to imply that there is a dichotomy and you can't possibly work in some fun and some variety into your workouts. But a lot of people, if you look at their program and the way they approach things, it's very um, novelty driven, purely based on variety and fun and flashing lights and fog machines and this oh, wonderful but then they want the results associated with a very structured, simple, effective program. So you kind of got to decide where you want to operate on that spectrum. But again, to go back to the quote, what's the top priority when you're in here for 30 to 45 minutes? Or do you want the best possible results? Are you comfortable sacrificing some results for a little bit of novelty? If so, that's fine. That's your prerogative. You just can't, you just can't have that mismatch between the two. Yeah. Well, a wonderful idea. And I think that most people, after you get past that beginner stage of training, the fun is in the progress. Like when was the last time you did something so new in a workout? They're like, oh my God, that was like so fun. It's probably been like a long time, but the most fun things you can think of over the last maybe five years is like when you hit new PRs, like, oh shit, that was fun. And it was the same workout that you'd been doing for the past like three months in a row. But like that day that you're hit that new squat PR, you're like, fuck yeah, (laughs) that was fun. (laughs) Or even micro, I mean, I've been training, I'm 29 now. I first started kind of getting my hands on weights in middle school, right? So I've been around the gym for over 15 years. A lot of the wins I have now, and I realize this will sound kind of weird or foreign to a lot of people, are simply almost feeling like I'm finally figuring out certain exercises because it's not a, you know, to go into this black and white conversation again, it's not, there's bad form, there's good form. It's a spectrum. So ideally, right away, we're getting you off the the side of things that's going to get you hurt. But then as you progress, again, there's only so much you're going to look at in terms of, you know, um, bells and whistles and flashy things. So a win for me at this point might be, oh, I feel like I'm finally getting the hang of a stiff leg deadlift and finding the proper positioning for me. And that's truly exciting at this point. And again, I realize it sounds lame as hell to a lot of people who are (laughs) listening to this, but one of the reasons why it is so exciting is because I know that's going to enable me to get more out of my workouts. And when I walk into the gym, you know, typically say four days per week, maybe five days per week, my top priority is getting all the things I then get to enjoy outside of the gym because there's so much life to be lived outside of the damn gym. So when I'm in there, it's to make everything else outside of the gym better from, you know, how confident I feel in my appearance to how physically easier life can become to my strength for just everyday tasks, et cetera. So again, I know that sounds like kind of a lame win to feel like, Ooh, these little nuances. Oh, I finally, I feel it in my lats a little bit more, et cetera. But when you kind of tie those with, okay, it's not just about you know, being a meathead and having these fairly obscure wins. It's because I know that as I do this stuff in the gym at a higher and higher level, everything else outside of the gym that I care about becomes better in some way. Pointed diminishing returns, of course, but that's the general idea. Totally understood. And I'm I'm the same as you, right? But I mean, this is this is our job. This is what we do. Like we, we like going to the gym and doing things and figuring out little nuances of exercises the same way that someone else 
you know, gets excited about some new thing in their job. Like I can't even think of a, of an example because obviously this is my only job, but I just but, bought a know. car. So I'm thinking of people who love cars and even the sound of an exhaust. And I'm like, I couldn't even comprehend being excited, but like you do you kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, some new, you know, with this car company came with some new steering technology, like great. Like I don't give a shit at all. But like, <laughs> if you do like, that's awesome. And like, I'm happy for you, but you know, I just care like, does the car work? And that's it. <laughs> but hundred yeah, percent, man, you're, you're, we, we got excited about the results and making gym, making life better outside the gym. Um, but at, at risk of going too far into another topic, let's cut it off there and maybe we'll pick it up again uh, another time sure. down the road. Um, what's coming up for you? Where can people find you? And, uh, you know, do you have anything you want to let people know about? Um, I'd say the place to send people is actually free nutrition So over the last 10 plus years of putting out content, I have put together, as you can imagine, quite a few different guides that over the years were fairly scattered of, you know, this grocery list and these sample meals and these sample snacks, supplement recommendations, et cetera. Uh, So to just make things infinitely easier for everybody, I just decided to put them in one place. There's no hidden sales pitch attached to that, by the way. It is literally just a free guide. End of sentence. Um, So if you go to freenutritionguide.com, you can get that. Um, If that does not interest you at all, I'd say connect you on Instagram. So it's at Coach Sam Forger. Yeah, I'd say those are the two places. Awesome. I'll put those in the show notes as well, but that, yeah, for sure. That's a great resource to send people towards. Um, and as well as your media, which is, which is obviously phenomenal as well, as we've referenced, you know, several times throughout the, throughout the podcast yeah. and, and yeah, rightfully forgive so. Forgive me for bringing up nine of my own posts. <laughs> no, not at all, man. It's, yeah. it's great stuff and people need to hear about it. So I'm happy that you did. Is there any last thing that you want to leave the people with here in closing? Yeah, let's, uh, wrap things up by pointing out, and obviously this is a recurring theme in our conversation, um, that sustainable dieting in itself does not exist. It's something that's very well-intentioned to hear often. People, oh, your diet should always be sustainable. Well, if the goal is fat loss specifically, you're going to have to creep into at least slightly unsustainable territory. And I realize that sounds like a really not fun way to wrap things up, me pointing that out. But I say that because I want people to kind of get in and out of a dieting phase. You get in, you do what you got to do, you get out, you don't have your foot half in, your foot half out. So if you're not seeing the results you're currently, um, you know, really passionate about seeing, I would just encourage people to perhaps turn up that sacrifice dial a little bit more, knowing that when you get to the spot you're comfortable with, you can phase back out. Just like budgeting really hard to get out of debt, you get financially comfortable maybe you're not cutting coupons anymore. So I'll, I'll end that tangent here, but just something to keep in mind. Beautiful, man. Thank you. I love that. At Coach Sam Forger on social media, freenutritionguide.com. Links will be in the show notes. Sam, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Share the episode, like, subscribe, share, all that kind of good stuff. And that's that. Go outside, be a good person. See you next time.